So, Pastor Walter and Michelle, so honored to be here in your pulpit and be back with you guys. You're very blessed to have them as your pastors. We've gotten to know them, and they're wonderful people, as you know, and uh, they really love the Word of God and want to instill that in you. So, we are very blessed to know them. Did you guys get it working or no? Is that yes or no? No. Okay. All right. You know, um, Jesus talked about the rich man in Luke 16 and also the beggar. The beggar died and was carried by the angels into Abraham's bosom. But the rich man died, and it says in hell uh, he was in torment in the flames. There's a lot that reveals in that Luke 16. You know, the rich man was concerned about his brothers coming to that place of torment. He didn't want his five brothers to come there. He wanted uh, Abraham to send Lazarus back to warn them. But Abraham said they have the prophets. And so may we have the same kind of desire to want to witness as he did. He, he didn't want his family to come there. And he understood that they needed to repent. So there's a lot that that revealed in Luke 16. And also that... Um, you know, he was tormented in literal flames. So it revealed a lot. And this was not a parable. As some people say, Luke 16 was a parable. Uh, it was not. Because a parable, no other parable has any names mentioned. This names three, Abraham, Moses, and Lazarus. Three names mentioned. And the second reason why it's not a parable is because Jesus said in verse 25, and Abraham said to the rich man, He's quoting Abraham as saying. If it was a parable, Jesus would have been lying because Abraham wouldn't have said that. And we know Jesus doesn't lie. So it is not a parable. It's a true story. And it revealed a lot about people will go to hell and be in torment in the flame for all eternity. But this is kind of ringing, so I don't know if it can... Do you guys hear that? Okay. Anyway. All right. So I just wanted to point that out so you understand... And also, you might say, Bill, Bill you know, in, that, in uh, Luke 16, it said that uh, if Ab he's, Abraham said, even if one came back from the dead, they would not be persuaded. So, Bill, why would God send you? Well, two reasons I don't fit that scenario. Number one, I wasn't dead. This was not a near-death experience. This was a vision. And number two, I'm not telling anyone to look at me and be persuaded. I am just a signpost to point them to the scriptures and by those be persuaded. Are we okay? On November 23rd, 1998, I had an experience that changed my life. It doesn't matter if you believe my experience. What matters is that you check out what the Bible has to say about hell and avoid it, just the same. And again, this was not a near-death experience. This was an out-of-body experience that would be classified as a vision in the Bible. In 2 Corinthians 12, 1 and 2, Paul, when he was caught up in heaven in a vision, he said whether in the body or out of the body, he didn't know. Well, the Lord showed me that I left my body. And so in a vision, you can actually travel. Like Paul and John actually traveled to heaven in their spirit bodies. 1 Corinthians 15, 44 talks about a natural body and a spirit body. So you can actually travel to another place, just like Ezekiel did in chapter 8. He was picked up by his hair, carried from Babylon to Jerusalem in a vision. He was told to eat. He experienced the sweetness of the food in his stomach. He wept. He conversed. My point is, in a vision, you can experience the same things in your spirit body that you would in your physical body. It's just as real. Job 7.14 says, you scare me with dreams and terrify me through visions. So you can have a terrifying vision. 
Isaiah 21, 2, he was given a grievous vision. And in Job 4, 14, Eliphaz was given a vision that caused his bones to shake. So you can't have a grievous, terrifying, bone-shaking vision. And this is not to compare my experience with any of these great men in the Bible. I'm just trying to give you a scriptural basis of how this can occur for a Christian. The only way a Christian can see hell is in a vision or a dream. And um, you might say, but Bill, you know, I, I, I'm a Christian. I'm not going to hell. Why do I need to hear about hell? Three quick reasons. Number one, when you understand how severe hell is, you'll be much more appreciative of your own salvation from what you were saved from. See, a lot of Christians today believe in a teaching called annihilationism. And that's a teaching that says you simply cease to exist if you deny Jesus. But that's not true. Jesus said in Matthew 25, 46, these shall go into everlasting life and these shall go into everlasting punishment. He used the same word everlasting. It's the word ionios. So just as heaven is everlasting, so is hell everlasting. It says the same thing in John 5, 29, Mark 16, 16, Daniel 12, 2, Acts 24, 15, Matthew 13, 30. All these verses point out that hell is eternal and you'll thank God you were saved from this horrible place. Number two, it causes us as Christians to walk more in the fear of the Lord. You know, a lot of Christians today live compromised lifestyles. They play around with sin and live in sin, even though they're saved. You know, they just think, well, I'm, I'm in the born-again club. I said the prayer, so I'm okay. But, you know, Jesus said in Mark 9, 47, if your eye offends thee, and the word offend means causes you to sin, he said, pluck it out. It's better for you to enter in the life maimed than in the hell fire. So if you walk, you know, if you understand how severe hell is, you'll be more, you want to walk the straight walk. You want to walk in holiness and not play around with sin. Proverbs 16, 6 says, by the fear of the Lord, men depart from evil. So it's the fear of the Lord. What is the fear of the Lord? It's just a healthy, reverential respect for Almighty God to the point where we obey Him. Deuteronomy 6 and Deuteronomy 17 mentions that the fear of the Lord is to read His word daily and to obey His word daily. See, now I know we are to cry out, Abba, Father, Daddy, Father, but at first we have to have a healthy, reverential fear of Almighty God and who He is. And understand there's consequences for our actions. We're accountable for what we do. So when you understand how severe hell is, man, you're going to walk that straight walk. You don't want to compromise and live in sin at all. And then number three, it causes us all to have more of a passion for the lost as Christians. You know, most Christians, they go to church, and that's wonderful, but... Bill Bright said only 2% of Christians even bother to witness. And that's what we're all called to do, is we're all supposed to share the gospel. And not just for the pastor, but all of us are supposed to take the opportunity and witness. Now, Charles Spurgeon said 90% of our witness is through our life example. Do we show up on time for work? Do we keep our word to our own hurt? Are we quick to forgive people that are ugly to us and mean to us? Do we show love to people that are ugly to us? That's most of our witness. And the world's watching us to see how we observe, they will observe us. But also we are to take the opportunity to share the word of God. And I'm not talking about chase people down on the street and beat them over the head with the Bible. I'm just talking about each day as you get up, you just have this attitude. You say, Lord, use me today. Put me in front of somebody today that I can share your word with. I'm available, Lord. Use me. I'm available. That's the heart of God. That's what he wants us to all have. And when you see how severe hell is, you have more of that urgency to want to witness because you think, man, I didn't know hell was this severe. I don't want my friends going there. I don't want my family going there. I've got to take more effort. See, you'll take more opportunity, more effort 
to witness to people. And 2 Corinthians 5, 10, and 11, Paul said, knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. Now, even though that scripture is talking about the reward seat for Christians, most of the commentaries agree that he was also talking about judgment and hell in general. So when you understand judgment and hell in general, you will be more persuasive with men. You, see, you understand? So that's what it will instill in us to have that passion, that desire to want to do God's will and be about the Father's business. My wife and I went to a prayer meeting. We attended Sunday night, uh, every Sunday night. Nothing unusual about the night. I had never studied the topic of hell at this point. I had never gone to dark movies. I've never drank. I've never taken drugs. And I had never had a vision at this point. And we came home like any other normal night, went to bed. And I got up at 3 o'clock in the morning just to get a glass of water. And suddenly, as I was walking through the living room, I was pulled up out of my body, like being drawn up out of your body. And I saw my body fall to the floor. And I started traveling down this long tunnel. And it was getting hotter and hotter. And I entered this open cavern-like area. And then I landed on an actual stone floor in a prison cell in hell. Ruffian stone walls, bars, filthy, stinking, dirty prison, but more like a dungeon. But see, Isaiah 24, 22 says, And they shall be gathered together as prisoners are gathered in the pit and shall be shut up in the prison. Proverbs 7, 27 mentions going down to hell to the chambers of death. The word chambers means inner rooms. Job 17, 16 says, They shall go down to the bars of the pit. Jonah 2.6, the earth with her bars was about me forever. So there's actual literal bars and gates in hell. And uh, that's where Jonah was, and that's what he saw. But as I was in this prison cell, I was fully awake and cognizant, just like I'm standing here now. I had no idea how I got there or why I was there at this point. And um, I, the first thing I noticed, though, was the intense heat. It was so far beyond the ability to sustain life, I wondered... How could I be alive? I should be dead. And my first reaction was I wanted to get up and run out of this prison cell. That was my first reaction. But I tried to move and I couldn't move. I thought, what's wrong with my body? I couldn't move. It took so much effort to just move a little bit. But see, Isaiah 14, 9 and 10 says, Hell from beneath is moved to meet thee at thy coming. They will say, Art thou become weak as we? And Psalms 88, 4 says, I am counted with them that go down into the pit. I am as a man that has no strength. So if you ever had the flu and you felt weak, it's a thousand times worse than that. Any movement takes tremendous effort in hell. But see, Acts 17, 28 says, in him we live and move and have our being. So even movement comes from God. It's not automatic. Well, I looked up and I saw these two demons in the cell, reptilish in appearance, bumps and scales all over the one's body, uh, huge jaw, sunken in eyes, claws about a foot long, and these particular two are about 12 or 13 feet tall. That's not an exaggeration. I could give you scripture for that too, but I'll keep moving. And they were pacing in the cell like a, like a vicious caged animal. They had the most ferocious demeanor about them, and they were blaspheming and cursing God. They had an extreme hatred for God, but we know blasphemy comes from the demonic realm. Revelation 13, 6, James 2, 7, some others. And then they directed that hatred they had for God, they directed towards me. I wonder why, what have I done to them? But the one demon grabbed me, picked me up, threw me into the wall of this prison cell. Uh, they have tremendous strength, you don't have any. I hit the wall and I felt as if bones had broken. I wondered, how could I be alive through this? I should be dead again. But I did understand that I, I didn't feel most of the pain. 
I didn't quite understand then, but the Lord explained to me that he blocked most of the pain that normally I would have felt there, but he allowed me to feel a small amount of the pain so I could relate to people that it's not metaphorical. It's not a state of the mind. It's real literal pain you're going to feel in hell. And the mountain I felt was enough. But then this other demon that was in the cell grabbed me and picked me up and just dug his claws into my chest and just tore the flesh open. Again, I wondered, how could I be living through this? I should be dead. I noticed I had a body. I looked, I had a body. But Matthew 10, 28 says, Fear him who was able to destroy both soul and body in hell. And remember Luke 16, the rich man Jesus talked about, he had a mouth to speak, he had a tongue, he wanted a drop of water to cool his tongue, and so forth. So you have a body in hell, but it withstands these torments. Another thing I noticed about the body, there was no blood or water coming from the wounds. It was just all dry. But Leviticus 17.11 says the life of the flesh is in the blood. Well, there's no life in hell, so there's no blood. And Zechariah 9.11 says, Thy prisoners out of the pit where there is no water. There's not one drop of water in hell. And these demons have no mercy over you whatsoever. They have an extreme hatred for mankind. And we know we've seen some of this hatred in the world today. We've seen where the terrorists have sawn people's heads off, right? Even children's. How merciless is that? Well, that comes from the demonic realm, that kind of wickedness and evil. But Psalms 103, 17 says, The mercy of the Lord is upon those that fear him. Well, they don't fear him in hell. So you don't derive the benefit of mercy. About this time, it went dark. Now, I believed it was God's presence there to illuminate it so I could see. And, but then it, he withdrew his light, so it returned to its normal state of absolute pitch black darkness. But Lamentations 3, 6 says, He has set me in dark places as they that be dead of old. Jude 13 mentions blackness of darkness forever. Jesus said in Matthew 25, 30, Cast him in outer darkness where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. But it wasn't just dark. You could actually feel the darkness. And that's not an exaggeration. Exodus 10, 21 mentions a darkness that may be felt. Because it's so evil and so wicked, it's just the darkness seems to penetrate through every cell in your body. Well, I was taken out of this prison cell and I was placed over next to this large raging pit of fire. This pit was about a mile across. I just had that understanding. And there was flames raging high up into this open cavern. And it wasn't metaphorical or allegorical flames. It was real, literal fire, just like the Bible says. I saw the flames, I felt the heat, but more importantly, it's what the scripture says. Psalms 11:6 6 says, Upon the wicked he will rain fire and brimstone in a horrible tempest. Psalms 140, verse 10, Let burning coals fall upon them. Let them be cast into the fire, into deep pits. Matthew 13, 49, The angels shall sever the wicked from the just and cast the wicked into a furnace of fire. Isaiah 33, 12 says, The people shall be as the burnings of lime. There shall be as thorns cut up and thrown into the fire and burned. Who among us shall dwell with the devouring fire? Who among us shall dwell with everlasting burnings? Many more verses I could give you on fire. And, uh, but this is why I could first see people inside this pit. There, I could see through the flames and I could see the outlines of thousands of people screaming and burning. And most of us have never seen a person on fire. It's the most horrible thing. Now, I couldn't recognize a man from a woman. They just looked like skeletons. With, it looked like flesh hanging off their bones. And the people were screaming. It was so loud, the screams from that many people, you want to get away from it, but you can't. You have to endure that for all eternity. But see, Isaiah 57, 21 says, There is no peace, saith my God, to the wicked. There's no peace of mind of any kind. 
But see, Isaiah 32, 18 says, my people dwell in a quiet resting place. Again, you're not his people, so you don't drive the benefit of even quiet. Now, I understood I was down deep in the earth. I descended to get there. I ascended when I left. But more importantly, there's 49 scriptures that talk about where the current hell or Sheol is the Hebrew word. Hades is the Greek word. I'll just give you two. Ezekiel 26, 20, number 16, 32, and 33. Very clear it's down deep in the earth, but I understood that. And I understood there were different levels of torment and degrees of punishment. Remember, Jesus said in Matthew 23, 14, you shall receive the greater damnation. That infers a lesser damnation. Or Matthew 10, 15, he said, it shall be more tolerable for Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city. Well, that infers a less tolerable. Or Hebrews 10, 28 says, of how much worse of a punishment Suppose it shall be for you, you who have trodden underfoot the Son of God. There's a worse punishment. But my point is there is no tolerable, comfortable level in hell. Any level is far worse than you can even imagine. I wanted to talk to my wife. I wanted to let her know where I was at. I wanted to take that opportunity, but I knew I would never get that chance. And you don't realize what it's like to not have any finality with your loved ones, to not be able to say goodbye. See, my... Death does not mean cease to exist. Death means separation from God. You still exist. You're just down deep in the earth. And to not be able to say goodbye to anybody that you love for all eternity, you know you'll never get that opportunity. See, Job 7, 9 says, He that goes down to Sheol shall come up no more. You understand that. And she'll never know that I still exist and I'm down here suffering. And uh, that thought was really tormenting to live with. And I wanted to then talk to a person then, just anybody, because there's pleasure in conversation, right? Just to be with somebody. But those people I saw in the pit, they're all kept at a distance from each other. You're kept apart. So you never have any conversation from anyone, ever. Um, so you're isolated by yourself. And you have no purpose. It's just a complete useless wasting away. But Ecclesiastes 9.10 says, There is no work, nor device, nor knowledge, nor wisdom in Sheol. Just a complete waste of and it doesn't matter if you're somebody famous here. No one would know who you are there. You have no identity. See, Ecclesiastes 6.4 says your name is covered in darkness. And you're forgotten in hell. Psalms 88.12, Isaiah 26.14, Deuteronomy 32.26, Psalms 109.15. I'll explain that you're completely forgotten in hell. And you don't realize how tormenting a thought that is because nobody's given you a thought up on earth. I mean, right, do you think about anybody in hell right now? No. It's even if you go to a funeral today, it's usually stated, well, they've gone to a better place. But that's not the case for most. Remember, Jesus said in Matthew 7, many are going to hell and few are going to heaven. So you're completely forgotten in hell. You're hungry and you never get to eat in hell. You have to endure that. The stench is the most foul, putrid, and disgusting odors, worse than any open sewer you have ever smelled. Anything you can imagine that's horrible, it's a thousand times worse than that. But remember, Jesus rebuked the foul spirits, Mark 9, 25. Demons have a disgusting foul odor to them. But also you're smelling the, the odor of burning flesh and also the smell of sulfur. And, you know, if you go to Hawaii to that volcano, they have signs posted where you cannot go past a certain point because the toxicity of the sulfur coming up, it will kill you if you breathe it. It's called sulfur dioxide. It's toxic. Well, sulfur is just another word for brimstone. And there were brimstones all through the Bible. So you're breathing in this foul, putrid, disgusting air that you don't want to breathe. But it's even worse than that because there's not enough oxygen or air to breathe in hell. 
And so you have to fight for even the tiniest bit of air. And maybe only an asthma patient can relate to this, but this is how you breathe in hell. It was like, That was as much air as you could get. Well, that's not enough. You feel like any moment you're going to suffocate. But see, Isaiah 42.5 says, The Lord gives breath to the people upon the earth. You're not upon the earth. You're down deep beneath the earth. God is very specific with his word. You need to sleep in hell. Just like here we need sleep. Now, I was only there 23 minutes, but I felt like I was there 23 weeks without going to sleep. And if you ever stayed up for two nights... Just try to stay up all night and don't go to bed for two nights. You're, you can't function after that. You're completely a wreck. Well, in hell, you need to sleep also, but you never get to go to sleep. But see, Revelation 14, 10, and 11 says, And they shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the Lamb and in the presence of the holy angels. And the smoke of their torment ascends up forever and ever, and they have no rest day nor night. Now, that primarily means no rest from the torment, but no rest of any kind. Because Isaiah 57.20 says the wicked are like the troubled sea that cannot rest. You know, the sea is always moving. Can't rest. But see, rest is a blessing from God. Psalms 127.2 said the Lord gives his beloved sleep. Well, you're not his beloved. So you don't derive that benefit. I was standing next to this big pit of fire. And demons were shoving people back in. People were burning. hard for us to imagine something, a place like this, but it really exists. Demons shoving people back in the fire. I saw people trying to claw their way out of this big pit, but you have no strength. You can't even pick yourself out, but there's demons shoving you back in. People are burning. It's, it's just the most horrific scene, and I was standing along by this big pit, and I have to explain something. The flames a pit a mile across here on the earth would produce a lot of light, right? If it was filled with fire. But in hell it doesn't. It is so dark it consumes the light. I can only see through it and just barely along the edges. And I was standing beneath the cavern walls that were sending upward like a tunnel. And all along the cavern walls were demons. Twisted, deformed, grotesque, the most hideous looking creatures. Some were only 2 and 3 feet tall. Some were 12 and 13 feet tall. Uh, everything with a distinct evil about them. And there were snakes all around the edges, crawling all over everything. And then I noticed I was standing on a solid bed of maggots, solid maggots. But remember, Jesus said, where their worm dies not, and he used the word maggot. And he personalized it by saying, their worm. You have your own maggots. know it's disgusting. I'm just trying to give you a Bible. Isaiah 14, 11 says, where the maggot will be spread under thee and the worm will cover thee. Look it up in the original. It's the word maggot. And, you know, I never knew this, but if a dead animal is being eaten by maggots, I know it's disgusting, but bear with me. If it's been eaten by maggots, after the maggots consume the flesh, 
uh, the maggots die. I never knew that. They die after they consume the flesh. That's why Jesus said where their worm dies not, because the flesh is never fully consumed in hell. So as Job 24.20 says, the maggot will feed sweetly on me. Is that disgusting enough? Again, I said you're hungry. You have the feeling of hunger for all eternity. Thirst, you never get to drink. Remember Luke 16, the rich man, he wanted one drop of water. Now, if I was to give you a drop of water, just one drop, that wouldn't suffice, would it? You wouldn't value one drop. But in hell you would. You do anything for a drop of water that you'll never get. The fear level that you experience in hell is so far beyond anything any of us have ever experienced. And maybe many of us have gone through something fearful in life. Maybe you're in the war and you saw some horrible things. Maybe you were robbed at gunpoint. Uh, I'm going to share with you an experience I had so you can understand what it's like to endure uh, that kind of torment and fear for all eternity. Because the Bible says fear has torment. Well, I used to surf a lot when I was a teenager. I was 17 years old. We were surfing off Cocoa Beach. And a whole, about 100 guys out that day having a great time. Well, the guy next to me got his leg torn off. Sharks. Ripped his leg right off. So I got up on my knees on my board, and the sharks were swimming around, passed by my, my board. I was on a nine-foot board. And he was longer than my board, one of the sharks. Well, the shark came back, bit my board in half. And I was swimming in the water. And my buddy was knocked off his board. And he looked at me and said, Bill, I guess we're dead. We were surrounded by sharks, and you're far out. And um, anyway, that shark came back and grabbed my leg. That's a tiger shark. It was a tiger shark. If you know anything about tiger sharks, they're the most vicious shark. They eat anything. And that shark grabbed my leg and pulled me down under the water. Now, you can imagine the fear that I felt at that moment. Even though you, maybe you haven't been in that experience, you can even try to imagine. Well, that fear that I felt at that moment paled in comparison to what you feel in hell. Wouldn't even register. But see, Psalm 73, 18 and 19 says, You cast them down into destruction where they are utterly consumed with terror. You're consumed with this terror for all eternity. Because there's no one going to come rescue you. You're not going to get out. You're in absolute darkness. You're hungry. You're thirsty. You're burning, screaming. There's demons tormenting you. Snakes and maggots. These are all things you're enduring forever. Now, I want to take a moment and give you some scripture about being tormented in hell. I know I've been giving you scripture because that's what's important for you to believe, not my experience. It doesn't matter if you believe me. But can you bear with me for a minute while I give you some scripture on being tormented in hell? Is that okay? Matthew 18, 34 mentions being delivered to the tormentors. Luke 12, 47 says you'll be beaten with many stripes or beaten with few. Psalms 50, verse 22, you that forget God, you'll be torn in pieces. Matthew 24, 51, I will cut them in pieces where there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Psalms 116:3. the pains of Sheol have gotten hold upon me. I found trouble and sorrow. Amos 5, 18 and 19, for what good is a day of the Lord to you? Judgment day. It'll be darkness. And as a man fled from a lion and a bear met him. Job 33, 22, his soul draws near to the pit and his life to the destroyers. Psalms 141.7, their bones are scattered at Sheol's mouth. Psalms 49.14, their beauty shall consume away in Sheol from their dwelling. Psalms 32.10, many sorrow shall be to the wicked. Psalms 78.49, I will cast my wrath upon them by sending evil angels among them. Deuteronomy 32.22, 
For a fire is kindled in my anger and shall burn into the lowest hell. They shall be burnt with hunger and devoured with burning heat and bitter destruction. I will also send the teeth of beasts upon them with poison of serpents of the dust. Matthew 22, 13. Bind them hand and foot and cast them away into outer darkness where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. And Psalm 74, 20 says, For the dark places of the earth are full of the habitations of cruelty. Full of the habitations of cruelty. The word cruelty there, if you look it up in the Strong's, number 2555, it's a Hebrew word, the original word, and it's the word Hamas. Like the terrorist group, Hamas. So for the dark places of the earth are full of the habitations of Hamas. Hamas means ruthlessness, violence, cruel hatred, and destruction. So that's what you're experiencing in hell. Now you say, Bill, why would God make such a horrible place? Well, Jesus said why. In Matthew 25, 41, he said, hell was prepared for the devil and his angels. He never intended for man to go to this place. He prepared it for the devil. But he used the word prepared. Same word he used in John 14, 2, where he goes to prepare a place for us in heaven or make ready. So what he did in the preparation was, you see, James 1.17 says, every good and perfect gift comes down from above from the Father of lights. So all the good we enjoy in life comes from God. The fresh air, sunshine, fellowship, drink, drinking, eating, sleeping, all the good comes from God. It's not automatic. So what God did in the preparation, since he was preparing for the devil, he withdrew his attributes or his goodness. See, hell is dark because 1 John 1.5 said God is light. There's only death in hell because John 1, 4 said God is life. There's only hatred in hell because 1 John 4, 16 said God is love. There's no mercy in hell because Psalms 36, 5 says the mercy of the Lord is in the heavens. There's no strength in hell because Psalms 18, 32 said it's the Lord that gives us strength. There's no water in hell because Deuteronomy 11, 11 says water is the rain of heaven. And there's no peace in hell because Isaiah 9, 6 says he is the prince of peace. So see, if God removes himself from the situation, all the good goes with him. You can't separate the two. You can't have the good without God. Can you see that? So if there's a person in life that says, you know what? I don't want anything to do with God. Well, fine. There's a place prepared that has nothing to do with him. Your choice. Now, other than one thing, the fire in hell does represent God's wrath. All through the scripture, it says he will pour out his wrath on sin in the form of fire. But God poured out his wrath on Jesus on the cross so we wouldn't have to take that wrath. So you can either let Jesus take it or you can take it. Your choice. As I was looking at all this horror, people being tormented by demons, I was in this tunnel and something began lifting me up in this dark tunnel. And now in the midst of this absolute pitch black tunnel, suddenly this bright light appeared. Now I knew immediately who it was. There was no doubt in my mind. And I didn't see his face. I just saw an outline of a man standing in a bright, pure, holy light. And it was like no light I had ever seen. It was holy, pure. And it was so bright, but yet I could look upon it. And I just saw him, and I said, Jesus. And he said, I am. And when he said, I am, I went out. I don't know if I died. I can only explain that through Revelation 1.16. When John saw him, he said his countenance was bright as the sun, and I fell at his feet as one dead. So I, I don't know if I died or what, but after a time, he touched me, and I came to. And it was there at his feet that it hit me so strongly that if he wouldn't have gone to the cross, I would be in that place for all eternity. I was so grateful for the cross. I just wanted to thank him. I didn't want to ask him any questions. 
I just said, thank you, Jesus. Thank you for dying for me. Thank you for taking me to heaven, Lord. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. And that's all you want to do is thank him and worship him. You don't want to ask him any questions. But after a time, thoughts started coming to my mind. And he would answer my thoughts. But see, Psalms 139.2 says he answers our thoughts afar off. I thought, Lord, why did you send me to this horrible place? He said, because many people do not believe hell is real. He said, even some of my own people do not believe hell exists. Now, that statement surprised me. I thought, wait a minute, don't all Christians believe in hell? But we have found out since many don't. They believe in, like I said, annihilationism or universalism. That's a teaching that says everybody gets saved. Or soul sleep, you just fall asleep. There's many false teachings. And he just wanted me to point people to the scripture. Because when you understand there's a hell, you're going to walk straight. You're not going to play around with sin. I thought, Lord, why did those demons hate me so much? He said, because you're made in my image and they hate me. Remember John 15, 18, Jesus said they hated me before they hated you. So those demons hate God, but they cannot hurt him, but they can hurt his creation. And that's why Jesus said in John 10, 10, the thief comes to kill, steal, and destroy. But he said, I have come that you might have life and have it more abundantly. So all the wickedness and evil we see in the world today, uh, sickness, poverty, disease, uh, devastation, and all that, all that comes from the demonic realm. It's not from God. We serve a good God that came to give us life more abundantly. Praise God for that, right, amen? That's right. I thought, Lord, I don't want to tell anybody about this experience. They're going to think I'm crazy or had a bad dream. He said, it's not your job to convict their hearts. It's the Holy Spirit's. He said, you just go and tell them. I said, yes, sir, I'll go. But I have to admit, I complained for seven years. The first seven years, I only told one close friend. And he invited me to his Bible study. And I said, no, I don't want to go. But he convinced me to come after three months. And I went to his Bible study. I shared it. I thought, okay, I'll share it one time. I'll get this over with. Well, that didn't work out so good. But anyway, we, got, we began getting invited all over the country. So for the next seven years, my wife and I were invited. We still had our work, a real estate business, and my wife worked. Uh, we would take her two days off a week and her vacation time. We would travel wherever we were invited. We paid our own way. We never took one dime from anybody for seven years. And, um, and I complained to the Lord about this. I said, Lord, I'm conservative. I don't want to be identified with someone that says they've been to hell. You know, I pictured somebody on a street corner with a wooden sign and wild hair saying, repent or burn, you know. And that's what I envisioned. And I said, I don't want to be a part of that. And I griped and complained to the Lord. But he spoke to me one day and said, Bill, it's not about you being comfortable. It's about you being obedient. Oh, man, I felt so convicted. Now it doesn't matter if I feel uncomfortable. Because if one person can see the light of the scripture and avoid this horrible place and go to heaven, then it's worth any uncomfortableness I would ever feel. But you know what? God's given us all something to do. And I found out there's no big shots with God. We're all equal. We all have something equally important to do. So whatever God's called you to do, just do it with all your might because you're going to have to answer to it because God gave you a talent and ability that I don't have. And you can reach people that I couldn't reach. I had to repent for complaining to the Lord. I said, Lord, why didn't I know you there? I didn't explain to you that God blocked it from my mind that I was a Christian. He hid that fact from me. You say, Bill, where's that in the Bible? In Luke 24, 16, when Jesus appeared to the disciples on the road to Emmaus, it says their eyes were holding that they should not know him. 
John MacArthur's commentary and Matthew Henry's commentary say, quote, they were kept by God from recognizing him. God hid it from their minds. Uh, other places of this are John 20, 14, Luke 18, 34, Daniel 4, 34, 2 Kings 4, 27, all places where God hid something from their mind, and he hid it from my mind for this reason. You see, if I was there as a Christian, which I was, but I didn't know, I would have said, praise God, he's getting me out of here, right? I would have known that as a Christian. But he wanted me to experience what they feel, hopelessness. See, they understand they're not going to get out. And he wanted me to experience what that is. See, Isaiah 38, 18 says, those who go down to the pit cannot hope for thy truth. And we know Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. They have no hope for him because it's too late for them. And that is really the worst part of hell, is understanding you're never going to get out. See, we can't grasp that. We always think of time as a line, that it's going to end somewhere. But in hell, there is no end to it. And you can grasp that, that a hundred million years will go by. And that's still day one. You never get out. I just don't want that to sink into you for a minute so you understand the urgency of this decision. If you're not a Christian, you don't want to take a chance with this one. Because one second after you die, it is too late. You will not get another chance. And you'd be in there forever and thinking, man, I had the opportunity. I could have gone to heaven. And I thought, well, I'll think about it later. You don't know that you'll have later. You know, we went up above the earth. We came out of this. We were in this tunnel, and this tunnel extended above the earth. And as we came above the earth, uh, I, I looked back down on the earth from space. It was amazing to see the earth from space. I mean, it's the most glorious sight to see what's holding up the earth. I mean, what's making it turn so perfectly, you know. Job 26, 7 says he hangs the earth upon nothing. And it was beautiful to see that. But as we came out of this tunnel, and I was looking at the universe and enjoying all this and understanding the power of God, how big he is, you know, that there's a universe he's controlling and the trillions of stars and planets and everyone is in perfect position, no one, nothing colliding, and that he knows every thought of everybody on the earth and every hair on their head. And I was thinking of all those things. Because when you're in God's presence, you can grasp that a little bit more, how big of a God that we serve. I was enjoying all that. But then he wanted me to turn around and look back at that tunnel we just came out of, and people were falling one after another, after another, back down into hell. And he allowed me to feel just a piece of his heart, the anguish he feels for his soul falling into hell. And I couldn't even stand to feel even a piece of it. I said, Lord, no, stop. I, I don't want to feel what you're feeling. And see, Ephesians 3.19 says his love passes knowledge. We love our loved ones, but God loves us way past our ability to even conceive. And to see people falling into hell, he wept at seeing that. Because he died to keep them out. But because he loves man, he gives them a free will to choose. They choose to go to hell. And that was one of the greatest things of this whole thing was just feeling a piece of God's heart, how much he truly loves every person. It's way far beyond what you can really imagine, how much he loves you. But you might say, Bill, how can this loving God then send a good person to hell? Well, God doesn't send anybody to hell. I'll get to that in a minute. But you see, you might be thinking, a good person. How can a good person go to hell? But see, there's, there's two different standards of good. There's your standard and there's God's standard. And James 2.10 says, if we offend his law in one point, we're guilty of all. 
If we lie once, Revelation 21.8 says, all liars shall have their part in the lake of fire. If we steal one thing, 1 Corinthians 6.9 says, no thief will inherit heaven. If we have one lustful thought, Jesus said in Matthew 5, that um, that's the same as committing adultery, and no adulterer will inherit heaven. That's just three of the Ten Commandments. So if we're going to be judged by that standard of good, would we be guilty or innocent? Have we ever lied once? Have you ever stolen one thing? There's even a scripture in Proverbs 24, 9 that says, even the thought of foolishness is a sin. One foolish thought crosses your mind, that's a sin. That would exclude you from heaven. That's a pretty high standard, isn't it? So none of us can stand before a holy God and say, hey, I'm pretty good, let me in. He's going to say, no, not according to my standard, you're not. Matter of fact, Job 15, 16 says, man is so filthy, he drinks iniquity like water. So in God's sight, we're filthy rags, as Isaiah 64, 6 says. Thank God it's not based on being good, but on a relationship with Jesus Christ. Amen? Because not one of us would be there. But you might not be convinced yet. A lot of people really struggle over this good thing. And I, I was on the secular radio talk show with this man. They said, Bill, watch your back. He does not like Christians. So I went on the air, and the first thing he said, he said, don't you quote me one Bible verse over my airwaves. You got that, Christian? I said, okay. And he said, I submit to you that your God is unreasonable if he doesn't consider my viewpoint. My viewpoint is just as valid as yours, and I'm a good person, so I should be let into heaven. And if your God doesn't let me into heaven, he's actually guilty of a hate crime. So what do you got to say for yourself, Christian? Well, what do you say? You're live on the air. Well, God gave me an analogy. Thank God. And I said, okay, you think you're a good person. You should be let into heaven. He goes, that's right. I said, okay, say you went and found the most expensive home in the country, and you knocked on their door, and you said, excuse me, but I'm moving in with you because I'm a good person. What do you think the people would say? No, right? You don't know them. You have no relationship with them. I said, but you, you go through your whole life, and you have nothing to do with God. You deny Jesus as the Son of God, which he said is the only way to his house. Then at the end of your life, you have the nerve to come knock on his door, demand to live there because you're a good person. What does good have to do with it? You don't know him. He's not your father. You have no relationship with him. See, God is your creator. He's not your father until you invite in Jesus as your savior. Then he becomes your father. Galatians 3.26, John 1.12, John 8.44, Romans 9.7 and 8, John 17.9, all explain that he's your creator. He's not your father until you invite him in. So it's unreasonable to expect to live in someone's house that you don't even know. He says, whoa, you can fight back. That's what happened. And he says, well, you Christians are narrow-minded. You think you're the only ones that's right. He said, you know, I think all roads lead to heaven. That's what I think. I said, well, let me give you another analogy, which, thank God, God gave me. I said, say you uh, invited me over to dinner to your home, and you said, Bill, I want you to go south on 405, uh, turn right at Main Street, go up the hill, you'll come to my house. But that's the only way to get to my house. And I say to you, you know what? I think I'm going to go north on the 405. I'm going to get off at Beach Boulevard. Because I think all roads lead to your house. That's what I think. Well, you're going to tell me, Bill, you're not going to get to my house. I'm trying to give you clear directions to my house. The same way God gives us clear directions to his house. I think God knows where he lives. <laughs> all we have to do is follow his clear directions and we will get there. That's not narrow-minded. That's specific. He's given us clear, specific direction on how to get to his house. He's not trying to keep us out. And, you know, but people think, you know, God's up there arbitrarily saying, well, this one goes to heaven, this one goes to hell. It's not that way. All of us above the age of accountability are automatically on the road to hell. 
John 3, 17 and 18 says we're condemned already because we're born in sin. Psalms 51, 2. So that's different than being sent there. We're already going there. That's why Jesus came was to plant a cross right in the middle of that road that we're all on. So all we have to do is look up to the cross, repent of our sins, acknowledge Jesus as Lord and Savior and receive him in our heart, and he'll take us off that road. Not narrow-minded. He's trying to get us to heaven, not keep us out. He said, well, can't God overlook my sins? I mean, you know, I don't kill anybody. That's the other misconception. If you don't kill anybody, you're good enough for heaven. You know, I said, no, God cannot overlook our sins. Because, number one, uh, two reasons. First of all, God is a consuming fire. Uh, Hebrews 12, 29 and Nahum 1, 5 said God is a consuming fire and that all of us would be consumed at his presence. Right? We'd be consumed. At his presence, because his nature is different than ours. See, if I stuck my hand into the fire to retrieve something out of the fire, and the fire burned my hand, I wouldn't say, why that fire burned me? That was mean of that fire. I wouldn't say that, would I? Why? Because the nature of the fire is to burn. My hand and fire are not compatible. Well, neither is a holy God and sinful man compatible. If he showed up in our present state, in our fallen nature, we would be consumed. He has to give us a new nature that's compatible with his. How can that happen? Only one way. If someone came and lived a perfect life and never sinned once, can you imagine that? Not even a foolish thought, not just Jesus Christ. And he stands before the Father and says, I've never sinned. I'm going to exchange my right standing with you, Father, for their sin. I'll take their sin. If they would trust in me and what I'm doing on the cross and not their own works. You know, Titus 3, 5 says, not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us. If we would trust in the cross, then God considers our trust as if we were righteous. And then Jesus takes our sins and washes them away with his blood. Now we can stand before holy God as if we never sins because our sins are dealt with. And now God gives us a new nature because we're trusting in what Jesus did, not in ourselves. Now we can stand before holy God. Isn't that amazing plan that God came up with? You know, people say, I don't like this one-way business you Christians have. You ought to be grateful there is a way. He made a way where there was none. Thank God for that. Now, this is the clear directions to heaven. John 3.36 says, He that has the Son has everlasting life. But he that has not the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. How do you know the Son? Just two verses. Jesus said in Luke 13, 3, unless a man repent, you shall all likewise perish. What does repent mean? Repent means to agree to turn away from a sinful lifestyle and agree to follow Jesus. It's not enough to mentally assent to the fact to say, yeah, I can believe Jesus is God. I believe that. And go live your own life, do your own thing, and still live sinfully. That's not repentance. Repentance takes a humble heart to admit, man, I'm a sinner. I can't save myself. And I'm willing to turn away from sin and follow Jesus. Now, on your own, you can't resist sin. But when you get born again, God gives you the new nature. He gives us the grace or the ability to stand against the sin. But right now, you have to be willing to say, I'm willing, Lord, help me. I'm willing to turn away and follow you. That's repentance. And then number two, Romans 10, 9, and 10 says, if we confess with our mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in our heart that God's raised him from the dead, we shall be saved. You have to believe it in your own heart and confess him with your own mouth. Jesus said in John 14, 2, I am the way, the truth, and the, John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes unto the Father but by me. You want to live his house? You do it his way. There's only one way. Now, if you say, Bill, I just don't believe that. Well, then I have a verse for you. 
Revelation 21.8 says, all unbelievers shall have their part in the lake of fire. So I just told you, if you don't believe my word, you will end up in the lake of fire. That's a message of love because it's a message of warning. He's telling you where you will end up if you don't believe his word. That's why you can see now why Jesus said in Matthew 12.37, your own words will condemn you. Because you said, I don't believe your word. You send yourself to hell. He doesn't want you to go. But he's giving you that free will to choose. You know, Revelation 20.15 says, Whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. God actually has a book, and he's going to look to see if our names are in his book. And can you imagine if he said to you, your name is not in my book. Then he'd have to say, depart from me into everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. He wouldn't want to say those words, but because he loves you, he gave you that free will to choose. You didn't choose to receive him, and your name would not be in his book. You know, when the Titanic set sail, there were all different religions, all different beliefs, and all different walks of life on that ship. And there were three classes of people, the lower, the middle, and the upper class. But when the ship went down at the Starline office in Liverpool, England, uh, the people would wait anxiously each day as a man would come out and uh, write their relative's name down. There were two signs. And one sign said, known to be saved. The other said, known to be lost. And they were waiting anxiously for the man to write down whether their family or friends were, which sign they'd be on. Now, when the ship left, all different beliefs, all, diff all different religions, and three classes of people. But in the end, there's only two. You're either saved or you're lost. So my question for you is, do you know if your name is written in his book? You need to be certain of this one. And please don't think, you know, I can think about this later. Because you don't realize when you leave here, your heart grows harder. You don't know that, but it does. And it's more difficult to reach you. And you don't know that you'll have tomorrow. Besides, Jesus said in John 6, you can't even come to him unless the Father draw you. And if he's not drawing you tomorrow and you get in a car accident and die, you'd be there for all eternity. And you would be thinking, I had the opportunity. Why would I have not taken it? And you don't have to clean yourself up when you come to God. You just come as you are. He loves you. He cleans us up. With every head bowed and every eye closed, if there's anybody here that would say, you know, Bill, I'm not certain my name is in his book. I don't know. But I want it to be. And I want to be certain. Or you might be here and say, Bill, I don't know if I've ever really truly repented. I mean, I maybe mentally acknowledge Jesus, but I've never really repented. I need to get my life right with God. You can do that right now. Again, please don't take a chance with your soul. Because whether you believe it or not, you will spend your eternity in one place or the, uh, another. And heaven is not our default destination. There needs to be a purposeful act on our part. So I'm going to give you the opportunity to count to three to raise your hand if you want to know that your name is in his book. One, two, three. Slip up your hands. I see your hands. I see your hands. Thank you for your honesty. We've all done this before. There's nothing to be embarrassed about. As a matter of fact, you want to make sure God sees that hand because he said, if you confess me before men, I will confess you before my Father in heaven.
Everybody stand to their feet. I'm going to invite each person that raised their hand. I'm going to ask you to get out of your seat, come down to the front, and give us the privilege of praying for you. I know it takes some boldness to get out of your seat, but you know, it shows God you're fully committed. This is not a half-hearted decision. It shows God you're willing to do that. Take some guts, but most of us have done that. So come on down to the front and let's pray for you. It's the most important decision you'll ever make and the wisest decision you'll ever make. You know, every one of you is so important to God that it says all of heaven celebrates over you giving your heart over to Jesus. The whole heaven celebrates over just one person. That's how important you are. God, so proud of you to come forward. And you'll never forget this time as you come forward, give your heart to Jesus. You'll always remember this. You certainly don't give up anything coming to God. You only gain. We're going to wait just another few seconds, and we're going to say a prayer, and you're going to invite Him in your heart. You might not feel anything. doesn't matter. You don't have to fear hell after that. You go into heaven. God has a plan for you, something for you to do, and He wants to help you in life. And then when you die, He take you to heaven. You know, I just, my mom and dad just died a couple weeks ago. It's really hard to lose your parents, especially both of them at the same time. But they were both saved, and I know they're in heaven. And that is what's so important. I will see them again. If there's anybody else, last 10 seconds, we're going to pray. You're welcome to come forward. Thank you for your patience. I'm just waiting another second because every soul is so precious to God. And if there's anybody at all not certain, you can come up forward and get your life right with God. Okay, we're going to say this prayer. You guys are going to repeat after me, and it's going to change your whole eternity. So I'm going to ask you, the people that came forward, I'm going to ask you to do something. I'm going to ask you just to lift your hands up. It's just an act of surrender. It's like saying, God, I surrender my life. I give you my life. You know, he laid down his life for us, died a horrible death on the cross, and you're just surrendering your life and saying, I give you my life, Lord. All right, you ready to say this prayer? And we can all say this out loud. Say, dear God in heaven, 
I know that I've sinned. And I cannot save myself. I believe you sent your son Jesus to die on a cross for me. That he was crucified. Died and was buried. But rose again. And lives forevermore. I ask you to forgive me my sins. I'm sorry. I repent. I turn my life over to you. Come into my heart. I receive you as my Lord and Savior. You are the Son of God. Thank you for dying for me. Thank you for taking me to heaven. And I now confess I'm a born-again Christian going to heaven and I'll serve you all the days of my life. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Praise God. Yes.